0: You're listening to... Whoa! Potluck!
1: Potluck! And welcome to Good Pop, a pop culture discussion podcast uh, from the Potluck Podcast Collective. With me to talk about all the good pop that we love are... Self-proclaimed professional Asian-American Jess Jew.
2: Hey! Still here!
1: <laughs> culture editor Han Wen. Hey! Give me the culture! And film scholar, Brian Hoo. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey.
2: There is definitely like a delineation of like education and research ability in this crew today. So Brian being leagues above all of us. So we're extremely excited to have him on.
3: And I've been doing all my lectures from this very seat. With this very microphone for the
1: last month. (laughs) Brian is here to give us some uh, bona fides for this podcast. Um, Of course, you can also hear Brian on our fellow potluck podcast, Saturday School, where he and our friend Ada say talk about Asian American film history. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, This is our first time we've had a four-person podcast, so uh, looking forward to our discussion. On this episode of Good Pop, we'll be discussing last year's Best Picture at the Academy Awards, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Which man was only like a month ago, wasn't it? Was it? Two February. months at this
2: point. Yeah, it was the beginning of February, but oh man, what seems like a lifetime ago.
1: But before we get to that, let's find out what good pop culture is getting us through this quarantine. So uh, let's start with Jess. What's popping?
2: I st- not pr- even though I'm professional Asian, sometimes you know I also need to take a break. So I've actually have been kind of obsessed with this show called Unorthodox on Netflix. It's four. It's only four episodes long, and it is about a woman, a young woman from the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn, who runs away to escape an unhappy arranged marriage, and she runs away to Berlin, I believe. It's Netflix's first series, mostly in Yiddish, so also a subtitled show, so still relevant, um, and it's just so fascinating to me. I, it just does. Make me wonder if it reminds me of the power of storytelling and how we really are able to form images and opinions of the world around us, even though we may not have direct contact with some people. So I think it's still pretty relevant of the work I do in my real life, and uh, yeah, just it's so well done. The creative team is completely women. The actors are all phenomenal. The lead is. She, she's so subtle like she can literally make you cry with changing like one little like emotion on her face um and it's just really well done i do not understand a word of yiddish i don't understand <laughs> uh you know there's not a community i had known a lot about before watching the series but and i probably still know nothing but um it, it's it's really well done it's really interesting and it so cinematic i mean i could tell they spent like a lot of money on this like probably crown level money on this but they only have four episodes so probably not not the same budget sheet but um impeccably well done well written
1: and i'm hoping for a season two so the whole season is four episodes so it's It's only four episodes bbc limited series type yes
2: it's a german and american co production and it's based off a real woman's memoir deborah feldman who was in real life also escaped her Jewish, you know, Hasidic Jewish community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and moved to Berlin and has now, she's now living in Berlin as a writer. So it's just very interesting because this is a community that's built off Holocaust survivors. And she chooses specifically to go back to Berlin, which is the root, the site of their family's historical trauma. So they deal, talk a lot about like generational trauma and. And what it means to move on from that or do they move on from that? And there's this idea that all the children born in this community are replacing the six million souls lost during the Holocaust. So it's a community that's extremely tight knit, but also extremely difficult to break away from. And you have to basically Mm -hmm. sacrifice everything you knew to have a chance at this other form of freedom. Yeah, so very well done. I'd recommend it on Netflix. Yes, subtitles, but it's 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 part family drama, it's part coming of age story, it's part psychological thriller. He has there's like this big bad cousin named Moishe who is like terrible, but also so fascinating. Um, you you have no idea what you can tell. He has like a shady, duplicitous past, but they never go into it. Um, but he obviously left the community and has since come back. So, uh, very interesting.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it's worth that, climbing that, uh, what was it, the one-inch wall of The subtitles? one-inch
2: wall.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> um, Han, what's popping with you? Oh, dear.
0: Um, well, there are a couple things. Uh, the first I would have to say is uh, Tao and the um, Get Down, Stay Down uh, uh, released a new video. And what's cool about it is that they really took the concept of social isolation and Zoom to a really a new level and made it work for them artistically. So uh, the lead singer, who's uh, Taung Nguyen, um, is doing the same synchronized sort of dance moves as eight other dancers. And so they kind of grid it like Brady Bunch style and sync them up. And so it took like some rehearsal for sure, uh, but it also creates like an incredibly cool visual experience. And it's something that I think that even pre- quarantine we would have still been kind of wowed by and i think that's what is kind of like emblematic of you know how like during difficult times they say like good art comes out of that so i she's an artist that i've enjoyed for quite a while i interviewed her for um when she redid the bojack horseman theme song but in vietnamese uh so she's just Mm. great and um, i love her sound and style and just sort of funkiness and it Definitely plays out here. So, yeah, if you can, check it out. And, but less improving than that, or Jess's pick is I'm also watching a Netflix reality series called Too Hot to Handle, which is basically Love Island (laughs) Church Camp. And uh, the Islanders are all like hot and sexy and want to just get it on with each other. But in order to win the prize money, they need to not have sex, kiss, or masturbate so you you can see that that's definitely my escape is fair where
2: i turn off my brain and that actually premieres friday so it, okay okay so you can't you can't kiss well, you can't have sex you can't like have sex but can you like can you like what if you jump to like one and a half second base there like, is, is no, that against
0: the rules there is no sexual touching but you can cuddle so basically it's kind of like they want to dial you back to let's say I don't even want to say middle school, elementary school, where you can hold hands, you can like hug. Um, and the point is all of these people that have been chosen have issues with um, relationships and they're like serial, like daters. So this is to kind of get them to talk to each other and build a relationship. Now then, the other thing about it beyond the ridiculous premise is that there's a virtual assistant like that talks called Lana, but it looks like a special, essential oils diffuser and, um, and <laughs> you can totally tell it's just a person that like even if it sounds electronic they're typing it in there's no way that any of this is automated um, so yeah it's totally ridiculous and it's completely what my mind sometimes needs
1: wait so is it a competition? Like, are they getting kicked off if they have sex? Is, they are like the,
0: the, the total pot is $100,000 and there is a deduction every single time there's a violation. So as far, I've only gotten three episodes in, um, in the screeners. But as far as I know, a kiss is $3,000 deduction. Now, what oh sex God. would be, I don't know. Um, and also, of course, you know, if you start with 100000 and there's 10 people, then that's 10000 each. Who knows how long it will go? As long, as long as people are making violations. And th- it's just so funny just to see them like not be able to do it. <laughs> so uh,
2: we'll see how So it they're ends
0: also up. policing.
2: <laughs> there's an element of them policing each other because they don't want to lose more money collectively.
0: Yes. And then I'm not going to ruin it, but some people are just not great with this concept either. So,
1: <laughs> this sounds like a reality competition show that you can only put on streaming because I don't know if any network would ever put this on. Oh, yeah. On the I air. warned
0: my coworker and she's like, okay, something not to watch with the kids.
1: Well, speaking of reality TV, Brian, what's popping Yeah, mine you? is the exact opposite.
3: Um, it's still on Netflix. <laughs> um, it's my favorite of all television shows, Terrace House. Um, which is now on the season called Terrace House Tokyo 2019-2020. T- so for those who don't know, the concept of Terrace House is um, you have six beautiful people. It's three guys, three girls who are um, usually models or aspiring models, aspiring actors. <laughs> um, but just like really sweet people who get in the house, uh, presumably because they, they're looking for marriage. Oh, no, not marriage. Uh, relationships but for the bulk of it you're just watching them try to learn how to um like live with each other in and as nice a way as possible and solve problems you like you watch them do the dishes you watch them like decide who does the dishes and in some ways this is just the most mundane boring reality show of all time but once you settle into the groove you realize this is like When nothing is happening, that's when the most stuff is happening. So, anyways, that's been going on for several years now. But this season in particular has become increasingly interesting because so how it works is they're filming, they have a camera crew in the house, um, and then you don't like it doesn't air on TV in Japan until about two months later. Uh, What I love about it is these contest not contestants, these people who live in the house, um, they don't really know how the rest of the world is reacting to them until about two months later. So then like two months later, they're checking the social media and people are like laughing at them where they're like pariahs, like social pariahs. Um, but this, this year in particular, because we know what's going to happen in Japan come January, February, and, and the anticipation Ooh. of that. And I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, in fact, I think they're just figuring it out right now. The latest batch that just went on Netflix is ending in January. Um, So I can't wait to find out how a show that's already very self-reflexive and thinking about uh, the the people on the show are constantly thinking about the fact that they are on a show, how they're going to deal with this Mm. um, conundrum. And and, and the other funny part of it is you're watching people kind of like in a house all day and we are in a house all day right now.
0: Yeah, I have a question about that because so I thought because I've watched previous seasons, I'm just a little bit behind that they go out in the world anyway. You know they do their jobs. They go to school, so they should actually. But oh, you're right. You haven't reached January yet. Um, but at the same time, like let's say the circle was it the circle in Brazil or one of those uh, countries? They actually had to release their people, or was it Survivor? I now I'm or Big Brother. I think. It was oh Big gosh, Brother. Yeah. yeah, I'm mixing them or... all up. Okay, so it's Big Brother, <laughs> where they actually had to release people from their house to you know, reveal what's happening in the world. And they were all like in shock because of course not having heard any of it and just being told like there's this disease, you, I'm sure they're imagining like zombies and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like because with Terrace house, then you would see the story developing.
2: So yeah.
3: So the last few episodes I've seen, they're wearing face masks. Wow. So it's starting, oh, wow. but nobody is talking oh. about it yet. Yeah. Um, and do you and know, just they're
2: still filming.
3: I heard um, that they stopped filming a couple weeks ago.
0: Oh, I do also have a question because, you know, usually there's the peanut gallery um, <laughs> discussing. So are they also talking, not talking about it?
1: It has not happened yet.
0: Oh, wow. okay. I need yeah. to catch up.
1: Right. Yeah. That's interesting because, yeah, usually it's it's a lot more time shifted where it's not like as current, especially by the time we get it. So that's super interesting. Uh, I imagine it's like um I used to have a podcast um, that I did for collaboration and... I've had some people tell me they started listening and thought it was really interesting to hear how our shows went as we got closer and closer to November 2016.
0: Um, and that person was me. I I was the one who listened to it from the beginning and was feeling this sense of foreboding. And I was like, oh, God, I, I just, oh, and, and, and it was just exactly what I expected. Just
3: you know, what's coming.
2: Yeah, I, I, well, watching anything now that, or there are crowd scenes, or there are you know people just eating in restaurants, or especially because a lot of the shows were wrapping up their series or season finales, and I know actually some of them couldn't even get their season or series finales produced uh, when the shutdown happened. It's like it's like wild, like you know these problems that they're having, you know these very regular everyday problems, which make totally make sense in the context of the world and the world just last year. Now you're just like, well. Well like every medical show just seems ridiculous now because they're not talking about the you know the COVID-19 pandemic. But of course they shot it months ago and so it'll be interesting to see hopefully when things do get back into production what are they gonna address it? Are they gonna address is this gonna be a world that none of this any ever happened are they going to do like a college we're going to flash back by four <laughs> years kind of a method like one tree hill did or gonna try to go through it and tackle it uh, and would people even be interested in watching it if we've gotten out of it yeah yeah it'll be interesting to see the art and the things that get created post quarantine i wonder if people are just going to go i'm sure it'll be a split of total escapism and like totally we're gonna get in the weeds and explore what this did to us
1: collectively
2: uh so marvin what's popping with you
1: well you know right now in the world life is kind of like a hurricane and uh i've been uh i've been coping by watching some (laughs) ducktales have you have any of you seen the new 2017 series of ducktales yet
0: I saw it at the very beginning, and I really liked the movie that they had to introduce it. I thought that went really mm. well. I did fall off for a little bit, but just mainly because I kept forgetting at what time and where it was and just <laughs> all that. Too much TV.
1: <laughs> so Frank and Gomez the um, showrunner, has been putting in a lot of work. And he's he's essentially created through DuckTales, the series, a Disney afternoon like expanded universe. Like throughout the last three seasons, he has brought in Dark Green Duck. He's brought in Gummy Bears. Um, And in the last three episodes of this third season, he's brought in Chippin' the Rescue Rangers. He's brought in Gene from the, the genie from the DuckTales movie. He's brought in um, Steelbeak and also Goofy not just any Goofy, the Goof Troop Goofy in his Goof Troop costume. And it's been, it's just been amazing. And this is a show ostensibly for kids on, you know, Disney XD, but made for those of us who grew up in the 90s and grew up watching the Disney Afternoon very, very amazing. So, like, for anyone who grew up coming home from school and watching the Disney Afternoon Block, you know, your your darkwing Ducks, DuckTales, Tailspin, uh, Bonkers, like, this show was made specifically for you, and you should watch it. I think what's exciting to me about
3: that is it doesn't sound like it's a universe created just to make more consumption. <laughs> like, it's just there purely to satisfy a certain fantasy that you might have. Yeah,
2: and he's not
1: trying to sell you lunch pails.
2: A, du- a DuckTales MCU.
1: <laughs> yeah, essentially. It's they started planting the seeds early. Like kind of putting in the background, you hear like stories uh, talking about cities that were in other shows, like Saint-Canard, like um, like Cape Suzette from Tailspin. And then late in the first season, they start um, introducing characters. So they introduce Don Carnage, the pirate captain from Tailspin. And then in like season two, they start straight up inserting like characters and what's really great about this series is also the cast is very diverse too you have like lima and Miranda, you have um i think bd wong played a character um huey is played by danny poody yeah um in some of the episodes where um donald duck gets like a chip to have people understand him his voice is played by don cheeto it's it's amazing it's awesome. Um, Don latest-
2: Cheetos, Donald Duck. Yeah, <laughs> you should have led with that. You're bearing the
0: lead here. Hey, and- I mean, you know who Scrooge is, and like, I just can't watch him yeah. without feeling turned on now.
1: <laughs> Scrooge is David Tennant. Um, <laughs> He's my some doctor. Might say the, the hottest what? doctor. That's
2: another. You should have led <laughs> with that. Scratch the previous statement. You should have led with that. Oh my God, David Tennant, you you just you are. Um, unknowingly in the david ten fan fangirl podcast we're just going to switch over to that now
1: and like essentially like half the cast from like the mike Sheer universe is in this show ben schwartz plays dewey duck um one of the bad guys um an evil vulture who runs who runs the illuminati in this world is played by mark evan jackson and also um in this latest episode uh, steel beak is played by jason Mansukas. So, like, so much crossover. So many of the the people that you love are on this show. And I thoroughly recommend anyone with access to Disney XD or Disney Plus or other streaming services to check out DuckTales because you won't be disappointed. So, yeah, cartoons. That's what's been getting me through this lockdown.
2: Yeah, I love your love of DuckTales, Marvin. Uh, I'll admit, I I think I was too young to catch the first round of DuckTales. (laughs) So, uh, but I'm really enjoying all these foul and duck themed puns that they've shoehorned in <laughs> uh and i i do appreciate that
1: yeah all right so let's move on to our feature discussion for this episode parasite a movie by director bong Ho. About two families, the Parks and the Kims, who live on opposite sides of the economic spectrum. The Parks are a wealthy family without a care in the world, um, just going about their rich, rich lives. And the Kims are a family that live in poverty who have to scrape and scam every day just to get by. And this movie is about what happens when these two families start intersecting through the slow and steady infiltration of the Kim family as the Park family's domestic servants. Um, So this movie has been out for a while now obviously one Best Picture at the Academy Awards and just released on Hulu um, this past week. So now everyone can watch this movie. So I wanted to start by just asking you all, like, what was your first experience with, with Parasite? So I can go first.
3: Um, I actually watched it at the Cannes Film Festival last May, where it had its world premiere. So, so I go to the festival every year. I, f- I found like it's harder and harder to get into the screenings I want. Um, and I just knew from the beginning that this is the movie I wanted to see the most. I mean, I'm a huge Bong Jun ho fan. And I just kept getting shut out of every single screening. And I started just showing up an hour, an hour and a half early to see if I can get in. And I would repeatedly not be early enough. Um, so I was approaching the day. And meanwhile, like, everyone is just, like, talking about how this is the, the film of the festival. But, you know, like, there's a lot of hype at Cannes. I want to see for myself. And so I, I saw that my my departure date from France was coming up, so I, okay I told myself I'm going to show up two hours before the screen time, and there were already people in front of me um so that that energy was already in the audience, and then when you went in you just it was just palpable like um people were shrieking um but it was also kind of a release, like the Cannes Film Festival, especially in the official collect uh, official uh selection you've got a lot of Hardcore art films and like the cliche of the contemporary film festival circuit is very slow movies with no dialogue, with minimal storyline. Um, and then Parasite comes and is the exact opposite of that. And it was the release that everyone's been looking for. Um, speed, efficiency, bloodshed <laughs> and great and humor. And so everyone, yeah, people were just busting up in their seats and yeah, um, everyone's staying to the very end, just hungry like this can't, yeah.
1: th- th- we need more <laughs> even when the credits are up. Yeah. I also saw it at, at the film, fest- I saw it at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And I remember when um, the day that they opened tickets to press, I went straight to Parasite and tried to get my ticket. And I was so surprised that I was able to get one because it was one of those movies where like, even, even then, like before anyone else in the States had even seen it. It was there's just so much buzz. Right. It had won the The Palme d'Or um prize and it was like your one chance to watch it before anyone else. But then at the same time, you watched it before everyone else and then you spent the next few months telling everyone, hey, you should really watch this film. I won't tell you why, but you gotta watch it. And I feel like people who watched it early were really good at not spoiling it. Although it was a very hard film to sell because it was marketed as kind of like a horror film. Right? Yeah, like, I
2: had a hard time convincing some of my friends to watch it. They're not typically moviegoers. So when I was trying to explain to them without spo- obviously spoiling what it was about, I was like, it's just, it's like, it's a comedy. It's a thriller. It's it's uh, action. It's class drama. But all in this very... Um, like quick and tight package and I, I don't know it was, it was, I met that challenge as well and I think, but everyone who watched it absolutely loved it, yeah so I, I saw it, maybe after you guys but a little earlier in the fall because we were helping push some community screenings out for the film, they were, Neon the distributors were trying they knew they had a hit on their hands but I think they were very smart about the way they approached the marketing campaign and the push for the push during award season. And I I think it helps to have someone like director Bong and the front lines. He's just so entertaining. He's like the sassy auntie that everybody loves. Um, His translator, Sharon Choi was also an amazing um, presence during the film awards. So that whole, you know, the whole package that was surrounding this really incredible movie was great. And I think, the biggest component was that it just, even with all this hype and this good buzz, it didn't let you down. Because I was, I also go see a lot of film festivals, and you know, most I, I totally get what Brian's saying. There's a lot of slow. I actually hate the really slow indie dramas, the ninety minute movies that feel like three hours. Like I want to like poke my eyes out. i um, I will admit, first and foremost, like I admit, my tastes are pretty. Like commercial trash, probably compared to some of you guys. I love the Fast and the Furious franchise, for instance. It's my favorite movie franchise. Very proud of that.
1: I feel like you can like both types. I'll like both types. Like you can appreciate all types, you for, know?
2: I think the Fast and Furious are an amazing action films, but there's definitely a camp that, you know, I, I just, I'm very like self aware that my, tendencies lie more commercial so i was actually considering sitting out some of these the screening i was working i was checking people in and then my boss was like no you should go watch it. it's really good i was like uh it's like it's like a three-hour movie i last the last three-hour movie i wanted to like burn my eyes out uh she's like no no, just go watch it. it's really good it moves fast
1: i mean your boss typically does not like indie movies so if she's giving her approval yeah i think i think that was also right. <laughs> it
2: because uh, i think the last one of the movies we saw together a few years ago that we both absolutely hated was phantom thread we just would <laughs> were like i'm like i'm waiting for this movie to end i th- that was the movie that made me want to gouge my eyes out to end the suffering more than anything i've ever watched before and uh i think it also came in with big hype a lot of my friends loved it a lot of my film friends couldn't say you know it was like daniel day lewis's like last film who i find him insufferable because <laughs> <laughs> I, well i won't get in that that's off topic but i was just like so i was i would think i was like expecting that kind of experience um but it was pretty much the 180 i loved it my butt clenched starting at that dinner with the scene where the Park family comes back and to the house after the ruined camping trip, and it did not unclench. And I believe that was at the halfway mark. So I sat there with a clenched butthole for 90 minutes.
3: That's funny. That was my reaction to Phantom Thread. (laughs) Just clenched.
2: Clenched in a good way or a bad way, Brian? Very good. (laughs) Okay, good. Whereas I found
0: Phantom Thread very entertaining, and I was laughing. So, anyway, yeah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I probably saw it later than anyone else. I had just transitioned to Slan at the time to become their culture editor, and while they had been handling culture totally fine, like they've been covering some of the big movies, uh, *Parasite* and I believe it was *Jojo Rabbit* were the first two films that I just made really big pushes, like someone needs to cover this and because I'm the editor I can't cover everything I want because otherwise it's kind of like this week I will be working all around the clock um so it was kind of like who can I get to write about this okay you know <laughs> just um but it was great because I knew already because of uh, the critical acclaim and I think it should be an award-winning trailer. Um, the way they put that thing together um, with the the quotes that would like come in and this uh, like, you know, only reveal the first half and then the second half of the quote um, was incredibly well done because, yeah, I had friends who were just like, I would just, just say, watch the trailer and go watch it. And they're like, I don't like horror. And I'm like, you think I do? <laughs> so I was like, it's, gives you a sense of foreboding, but I guarantee you it's not horror. Um, but yeah, so it was, oh my God. It's a transformative experience, I think, watching it. Because there's so many things about the way you're reacting and you're noticing that uh, you, it, you don't know exactly what at the end, but you just want to see, like, think back about it and, like, discuss it. So, like, we're going to do.
1: yeah. It's definitely a movie that defies categorization because it's so many things but it's also so masterfully made and i know as we were going into award season everyone i was talking to was pretty much convinced that it was the best movie but it wasn't going to win best picture because of it being a asian film in korean um so when when it did finally win like the elation amongst not only the community but like the greater filmmaker community in general was like so like universal. Like I don't think anyone who like loves films thought it was a bad winner.
0: Yeah. And in the film critic community, definitely uh, most people had the ballot that they Oscar ballot, they thought that would win. And then they had their heart ballot that also had parasite usually at the top of it. So it was kind of mixed feelings when they are like, they didn't win the Oscar pool, but they were like, Oh, but my heart ballot won.
2: It was also just such an interesting year. Cause this, it was competing essentially against once upon a time in Hollywood, Um, which Hollywood loves, loves films about itself. And a Quentin Tarantino film about 60s Hollywood starring two of the biggest movie stars of our time, which had a component of dubious, putting that kindly Asian-American representation in it. It, To me, it was just like, I was like, okay, that one's obviously going to win. And uh, because... You mean like the artist one, you know, like and I don't think anyone thinks about or talks about that movie now Um, but yeah, they're they're just very self-congratulatory so it just seemed like, and it was, I think he was sweeping all of the a lot of the writing awards early on and a lot of the uh, best film awards leading up in the early days of the awards season so to me it was like a very like David and Goliath kind of a battle and one was the well-deserving true, like the true voice of someone uh, from a, from a. I don't you want to say marginalized. He's not necessarily marginalized. It's, he's a South Korean director from South Korea, a very successful and extremely talented, but definitely something that America, I don't think, was used to seeing. Versus kind of the big Goliath of, and I just find Quentin Tarantino so annoying. So I was like, I was very happy when Bong Joon Ho won all the things on Oscar night.
3: Yeah, for me, it was, yeah. I, I was in the same boat of like, this, there's no way this could win. We saw what happened with the Roma last year. I mean, I, I remember watching <laughs> that award ceremony when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon basically came up empty in the big awards. We saw Ang Lee not win for, for Brokeback Mountain. And, like, and, and last year, a Palm d'Or winner, Asian film, j- Shoplifters, like it wasn't even close. Yeah. I mean, so why, why would this one win? Yeah, I made a little bit of money. I, I just was not convinced that this was possible and I was happily like, I, I was so happy that I lost my my pool.
2: Yeah, Brian. Do you know why? Can you answer that question from like an academic standpoint? Like, why this one? What what were the conditions that made Parasite? Where? how did it reach this level that pre- previous films like The Crouching Tiger, which had arguably a really stacked <laughs> international cast, like a very easy to sell concept, right? Like Kung Fu, beautiful art house Kung Fu film with some of the biggest stars in Asia with a huge Asian American you know Asian American director um with name recognition like that that didn't get as far as what parasite granted that was like more than 20 years ago but what what why parasite and why now
3: yeah i think the crouching tiger i mean it was 20 years ago i think the academy has changed a lot since then in terms of who is voting and um i, I think at, at the crouching tiger was a huge financial success and huge critical success but I don't think, I remember people in the, um, the Academy voters were like, how could we give this best script? We don't understand Mandarin. Like that was the reason for not <laughs> voting for it. I, I think that Parasite really, um, I think it won largely because the Academy does care about money. They do care that this is the mon- this, this film made a lot of money, a surprising amount of money for a foreign language film. So I think that made people want to say like, you know, it, it's crossed certain kind of boundaries that we, that we understand, that we value. And also, it's a film that fits within cult circles very well, as well as filmmaker circles, because it's so impeccably done. And then, just Neon knew what it was doing, and uh, I, 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 and that's also kind of surprising because they don't think they've been in this at this level of uh, of um, advertising a film before. But they like everything that had to happen for for Neon, it it worked out for them. Like all the awards that came up, so it had a certain kind of momentum and a um, uh, underdog. Um, spirit to fight for, and yeah, it was. I still, I still can't believe it. I mean, if <laughs> if uh, if it didn't win, I could make it.
1: E- it could easily make this in arguments for why it should not have. It, it could never win, or like an easy argument why the Academy Awards are now irrelevant. Right. But I think like the the Academy has like saved itself from irrelevancy by like awarding. And what I really half enjoyed, and half was a little annoyed by. It was all of, like the punditry that was going on and how how and why Parasite could or couldn't win. And, like, people digging into just, like, the way the voting works and, like, really scrutinizing the the ballots, the same way like you scrutinize an electoral race.
0: Yeah, this is something that you take into account every single year, though. Like, that's why critics do Oscar polls and do all that st- type of stuff and predictions, because they always have to take into account the politics of it. And so it's funny you did mention, like electoral races and stuff like that because it kind of is and it has to do with you know who it who is making up that body and it has changed over the years which is great but you also still do play the game of well like someone so was nominated they'll give him the director's thing that they might not give him the you know best picture because you know he got his token award and yeah it's it's ridiculous how that always happens but it it really is um how it works and it's one of the things that, as a child, even because I was reading like Oscar books when I was a kid, and I just remember was outraged because I was watching a lot of these old films, like how, let's say, the greatest show on earth had won best picture because that's piece of crap. So I, I kind of understood that it was political from the very beginning, and that for me that meant I didn't get my heart too set on anything. <laughs> uh,
2: I so many times before.
1: <laughs> You've been hurt before.
2: I don't think most children are reading Oscar books, Han. So
3: I—I <laughs> I, I was definitely I had my um my the almanacs of the year, and I was just like I could memorize. I could tell you like who won Best Picture in 1982 and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I used to be able to cite the people who won like back to back or how many you know like Katharine Hepburn and how many she did and all those types of things. And then after a while, I was just like it means nothing.
3: But, but yeah, like about that political thing, like even while watching the the telecast this year, I thought, oh, they gave him Best Writing. Great. Like that was they gave him they gave him a big award. Like but but writing often goes to an edgier film. That's that's the last movie they're getting tonight. Oh, the last award they're getting tonight. And then Best Director happens and you're like, oh wow, they gave him
1: like two really nice awards. And then so I did not expect that there would be another one. But it gave us the gift of watching like all of Director Bong's reactions on stage, which has been the gift that keeps on gifting.
2: Truly. He's um yeah, when he won for best original screenplay i was like oh we got a shot in this race and then when he won director i was like oh because usually the director it there has been this weird phenomenon of dividing the director best director and best movie and typically the best director is not the director of the best film which makes absolutely zero sense to me um uh, for, for just <laughs> how, how that was the best film the director is in charge of Making the film, so what happened there? Um, and I fully recognize I think mean, the first time I noticed that actually was when Ang Lee won for Brokeback Mountain and then Crash of All Films won for Best Picture that year. I think this was 2005, um, uh, just a while ago, and obviously, Brokeback Mountain was very controversial at the time, so. I was like, but I was, I was, yeah. I was very not hopeful. I actually went out to go eat like spring rolls with my parents um, the night of the Oscars because I was like, I don't care. He's not if he's not going to win, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but I did come back just in time to watch him win Best Director and Best Picture, and I screamed so loud, my mother thought like uh, someone killed me. I miss spring rolls. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> we ordered the catfish ahead of time, and you know we like. <laughs> made the made the fried catfish rolls it was delicious. Uh, sorry, not
1: to. So I have a. But... It's kind of a litmus test for like who you are as a person. But uh, who did you support in this film? Did you support rich family or scam family?
0: Definitely the Kims, and it was fascinating to me because I remember listening to certain podcasts where, let's just say, they were an of an older generation, <laughs> and talking about how everyone was sneaky and all this other stuff, and using language where I was like oh, you're clearly showing your privilege. Um, So I was all with the Kims. I did not identify at all with the Parks. I think I got those right, right? And um, yeah, and and, like they were a nuclear family. They're just trying to be together. You know, (laughs) they're trying to eat. (laughs) And it's kind of, you don't see families like that all the time that work together like that. So I found them very inspiring.
3: That's so funny that when you said, which family do you support? My immediate I, I mean to go to which of the two poor families do you support? Because to me, <laughs> right. those are the only choices.
1: <laughs> I, I'm actually pretty it's, surprised that he anyone's hearing for the, for the rich family. It's wild. Well, it's because, so as Parasite started, you know, releasing first limited, and then you had this situation where there was only one theater in, like every city that was showing it. So some people were watching it. So I started tracking the hashtag because I wanted to see, you know, I'd waited two months for people to finally start watching this film. I want to see what people think. And I was surprised that there were quite a few reactions where their takeaway was always vet your help. Like, that was literally their, like, <laughs> takeaway from the movie.
2: I actually, maybe this is me showing, this is definitely me showing my privilege, and we were just talking offline about how I was, mo- I relate, I empathize with the Reese Witherspoon characters more than I wanted to. I didn't think the Parks were that bad. Like, sure, they're a little, pri- they're privileged, yes, they're <laughs> definitely a little tone deaf, but... At the end of the day, they were hiring these people. I I actually thought there was there wasn't really an issue until everything blew up because they were still they were getting both families were getting what they wanted. The Parks were getting the help that they wanted for their household, and they were happy, you know, with the tutoring and the regardless of whether it was working or not, they were happy with it. And then the Kims were able to kind of be in a better position to provide for their family. Um, even I I. I think, I actually, I love the part where they are kind of getting the job scamming. I think in some way she performed. We all do that. Is everyone really proficient in Microsoft Excel? No. Um, but when it came down to it, they wrote <laughs> to the occasion. But I didn't think the parts were terrible. Like I didn't think the, they what, were either. Does, I don't know what yeah. that's say about me, but I, yeah. Well,
0: I actually thought they were sympathetic. My clarification though is saying that the podcaster I listened to was using derogatory language for the Kims because that I think showed her privilege. Now I think the parks are perfectly fine. Like there are moments, definitely, when they did treat the Kims as subpar, not even humans. And I think that was the point of when like I was when I was re-watching it up and you know how um, is it Ki-woo was just saying everything's metaphorical. And I'm like, everything is metaphorical when I was watching it. (laughs) Cause at the very beginning, you know, the Kims are like, they have a stink bug problem and they're like, Hey, let's fumigate ourselves with along with them so that they'll die. And I'm just like, that is exactly what's happening in society where, you know, people would rather spite their own faces in order to get ahead of other people and get rid of them. So I do think that the parks haven't been great the Kims and the Kims, of course, hadn't been great to scam them. So definitely they each, you know, were doing their own thing. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I, I my sympathies just because of my upbringing, I think, um, meant that I identified.
2: I think. But then when we add in the conversation, the the chauffeur, they got fired, the housekeeper, they got fired, you know, and then their treatment of the spoiler alert, the basement family was. Um, I think that also changes the conversation. So how do we feel once we add the old housekeeper and her husband who are even in an even lower position than the Kim family? It's all hierarchy, man.
0: Like they they look down on them and they were in the lower basement. So literally upstairs, downstairs, and then sub basement. Super downstairs.
3: I mean it's it's a hierarchy but I think what makes Bang jun ho so masterful and such a delight to watch is that everybody is kind of screwed up. Uh everyone is a little bit uh, detestable or diabolical and and he derives so much pleasure from us navigating th- these very questions that we're asking right now like who who what whose side are you on? And if if taking any side also makes us a little bit diabolical. And
1: he wants to make a movie where we can get that kind of joy because that's th- that's the kind of thriller that he excels at. Yeah, I mean, I think he's been on record saying the real enemy here is capitalism and how it puts us against each other. Um, everyone thinks they're they're doing what they can, doing what they should to to get ahead. And you see, you know, like the Kims and even Basement Family. I forgot their 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 family name, um, but. They're all victims of, you know, failed entrepreneurial pursuits. Um, They're all trying to live off the wealth of someone with capital. And the scene that um, you mentioned, Jess, where they're hiding under the dinner table or under the the, The the living living room room table. table. Yeah. And they kind of hear exactly what their benevolent bosses think of them. And it's just so like... Yes, that's so (laughs) cruel. It's such a cruel (laughs) twist. You know, you see it today, like even in like, how we're seeing, like, stuff like this stimulus and this, like, this economic downturn right now during the coronavirus, things are coming to a boil and at some point, like, someone's gonna snap, like, Mr. Kim, like, decide he's done taking that bullshit. Yeah,
2: I mean, yeah, definitely we're seeing a version of Parasite come to head in real life because when you think about who has that, who has the nice houses right now to quarantine in, right? And who's out there serving the people in the houses, Uh, You know, if we were going to set Parasite in South Korea now, the parks would be holed up, you know, getting their super expensive beef delivered by someone like Kiwoo or uh, (laughs) Mr. Kim into the house and they'd just be, you know, sheltered in place. Uh, And then the basement family would be screwed because if they were able to come out at all. Right. Um, So, yeah, it's it's really capitalism is the big bad. In Parasite (laughs) and in real life, Uh, I think we're seeing, I think that's, it's like a weird, like, lived experience. I I do think I would love to rewatch it now. I haven't rewatched it since um, before all this went down, before the awards season, so I would be interested to see what it feels like now to rewatch it.
0: Yeah, actually, that's kind of, it's a really good point. You're talking about the sheltering in place and how different their experiences are. Because when I was watching it the first time, I do remember, you know, I and people have written about this, how like the parks, they look out into their backyard and their full wall is glass. And it's like, that's their TV. And then while I was watching it, of course, the Kims have the tiny little window at the top. And so I was just thinking, like, what are each of their TVs? So the Kim's are watching this drunk guy pee. Um, And then the Parks are watching their own son camp because, you know, God forbid that the dad go out and camp or mom go camp with their own son, um, which, you know, normally parents do. So I just thought it was fascinating, like how they like view the outside world through the comfort of, you know, relative comfort of their own homes and then like the different things they see and how they actually, you know, treat the people that they see through the glass.
1: Yeah. Well, I also brought up parasite for this week's um, episode because I wanted to get your thoughts on what does it all mean now that we have a best picture that is Brian and Han, like since you two are the Academy scholars, has there been a best picture that's been like a quote unquote foreign film? Yeah. There've been films
3: that are technically foreign films. Like, I mean, like uh, Chariots of Fire is a British film. Um, Slumdog Millionaire. Not like Meliner. a foreign language film, I meant. Foreign yeah. language, then no. Is that right? I don't think so. Yeah,
0: because this year was, I think, the first where the international was... It was called international film versus foreign. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that way, we it was... It, um, able to win both whereas previously the foreign language film couldn't also win best picture Am I no it, it used to
3: me? be able to like for instance or, crushing or, tiger was nominated for but both. yeah
0: or it just it didn't but also right. just calling it foreign language versus international i think was a big deal so yeah
3: i think that distinction helps us understand why a foreign language film has never won before the fact that it's called a foreign language film means that hollywood sees english language films made outside of the u.s As one of their movies, like a British film or an Australian (laughs) film is still kind of a Hollywood American film. Um, And and the the term foreign language just makes it seem like, no, it's it's English language versus everybody else. And just the fact that they have it embedded in their idea of who they are is also another thing that made you feel feel like a foreign language film could never win Best Picture.
1: Yeah, which is wild because there's been a lot of really great international films over over the last few years. And, you know, one of the reasons why I invited Brian to come on this podcast is because he's introduced me to a lot of them. Um, If you ever have time in the fall and once all this craziness is over, check out the San Diego Asian Film Festival because Brian's program is always top notch. And I wonder if this will open the door for more people to like Are the distribution companies now looking actively looking for like what the next Parasite will be, you know, now that that's. A possibility now or do you think this would be a one-time thing?
0: I don't necessarily think so and also when you're talking about let's say foreign language and the one-inch wall of subtitles sort of a theory I've been positing for a little while is that besides um, that you can't really underestimate the impact of Netflix I believe to like let's say three of us mentioned Netflix series as what's popping, and two of them use subtitles. And I think the global um, acceptance now of watching foreign TV shows um, a lot of times with subtitles. Sometimes you can get them dubbed, but uh, not always. Like Terrace House, like there's no dubbing there. But uh, yeah, it, it, it I think has made at least the newer generation um, of TV watchers and consumers like more accepting of reading and i do know that like let's say gen z or is it millennials i don't know uh are also often using closed captioning when they watch because sometimes they're like watching on their phones in a busy airport or whatever it is they're they're out and about. And so like, I know a lot of people by default put on closed captioning. So reading while you watch something on the screen is not as foreign as it was. I think also Game of Thrones helped with that because there's a lot of foreign languages in there. Um, Just (laughs) like Dothraki and Valerian and stuff like that. And just again, like you can't think of this like 15 years ago, maybe, maybe with Lost like 10 years ago, like people were watching those subtitles, but Lost was such an anomaly. So I, I, I do think that, yes, it's a big deal that Parasite won with the foreign language aspect, but I think in some ways uh, it goes both ways, you know, sometimes TV was a little bit ahead of that. Um, Whereas I think film has been ahead in other ways, you know, as far as like let's say casting for leads with you know in diversity so yeah,
2: yeah. i think the access just generally over t- generationally the access to foreign content with subtitles is so different so when i was growing up anime was huge but there were we weren't getting the dubs yet so you would just literally go on youtube and watch like the japanese language shows or you would download it. You know, this is like this is like LimeWire era. You would download it and like share the files with your friends. And those Japanese language with subtitles. And then I think the proliferation of things like Korean dramas, Chinese Taiwanese dramas, that was really that really started maybe like I would say like the early two thousands, and then made even more accessible with streaming platforms like Crunchyroll. Hulu, Netflix now. I mean Netflix has a whole Korean drama section. Everyone is watching Crash Landing on You now, which is crazy. <laughs> because I remember a time when like I would I couldn't get anyone to get into this with me. Like I had to drag teeth <laughs> to get any of my friends to try it. They would just adamantly refuse. So I think like there's a generation that grew up more comfortable with subtitles that was made accessible by digital streaming because I don't know if you guys went through this or this is a shared experience with you i remember my parents every time they came back from a trip to asia they would come back with like a suitcase or like part of the suitcase would be like bootleg (laughs) dvds of like random chinese movies whatever they were selling on the street so it's not like you get to choose what movies you watch are kind of like sifting through what you assume are the best hits and then you have to pop it in the dvd player that is region unlocked Or region unspecific because DVDs used to be region locked. So you could not watch a Chinese DVD or a Korean DVD or a Japanese DVD in the, on American DVD player. So there's like one, there's like one DV, stray DVD player floating around that you had to plug into the TV and figure out. That's actually how I watched all my Stephen Chow movies back in the day, (laughs) you know, from these like very kind of low quality a bootleg dvd burn sometimes it would literally be some guy obviously brought a tripod into the movie theater and just set it up to film the screen but you know i think um and then i think once this st- i think if the story's good you're just you're you're involved whether you necessarily want to be or not
1: well i mean that's the thing right like growing up we watched a lot of asian movies at least i did you know we watched a lot of like my family watched a lot of stephen chow as well a lot of like chowing fat a lot of uh andy lao andy lao and, yeah
2: <laughs>
1: and at some point like i remember i was in college when i first watched um EE, which was like my first experience into like chinese art films i was like we make these films we're not making derivative films of western comedies anymore like that opened a whole new door like what kinds of artistic visions are out there outside of like what we're used to watching in in the states?
3: So I have a lot of ideas based on what everyone's saying, which is ma- like you guys are saying great things. Like so, Jess, you mentioned all these suitcases of DVDs, and there are probably some like VCDs in there too. Um, oh,
2: oh, VCDs are are no yeah. no laser discs, thank God, but definitely VCDs. Yeah,
3: <laughs> but so I, I think piracy is a is really important in part, as part of this conversation. Like so much of how our generation. Came to know like whether it's anime or like John Woo movies back in the day. Or Stephen Chow was through pirate piracy, and now when I talk to my students and like they're not from, they're not immigrants, but they all know how to go mm-hmm. online and download stuff. Like they've, when I assign them a film, they go to YouTube to see if they can find it there, and it's definitely not legal on YouTube. <laughs> and so now if everyone is <laughs> able to kind of find things in the pirate networks more, like maybe it, it'll maybe, maybe they'll be stumble upon things that they wouldn't otherwise. I think it's also interesting that we're just talking about like really now we're talking about television um, in terms of where people are starting to get exposure to subtitles. So my next like I'm, I'm curious, like a subtitled film is one best picture. When is a subtitled television series going to win an Emmy? Um, and, and are there kind of like dividing lines there between what is quality, not quality? What is um, like a network show versus an import? And if, if these conversations we're having about film are going to extend to television as well. And then lastly, like because we're talking about film versus television, I think film still requires um, certain kind of a, a, a institutions in place to, to anoint a film to the level of the parasite. So right now in the news, we're talking about the Cannes Film Festival and it's going to happen this year. And the Cannes Film Festival is important not just because it's a platform for all these important directors, but there's like an important market that's attached to it. It's where everyone buys the films that are then going to invest money in for the fall and winter award seasons. If Cannes doesn't happen... And if it goes on, in Venice doesn't happen, if Toronto, we don't know what that's going to look like. Will Will 2020's Parasite happen? Um, or it may just come out in one country and it'll never get that sort of international platform that's required for it to to win an Oscar. Um, so these are all things that are circling in my head as I'm listening to you.
0: Yeah, it's just like all of these ideas are swirling in my head um, as like <laughs> what percentage of like subtitles do you need on a TV show to be considered a subtitled TV show? Because (laughs) Game of Thrones did win (laughs) Emmys and it had plenty of subtitles, but definitely not Mm -hmm. majority or even half. So, you know, like, let's say something like a Narcos. I mean,
2: wild that we will accept a a show that has multiple made up languages that they had to hire this (laughs) one guy to make up. And yet... When it's like a real language that's spoken by a billion people, like more than half of the world or something like that. You're just like, nah. like whether it's Spanish or Chinese, like <laughs> billions of people speak this worldwide. You're like, eh, no, that's too foreign. I'm like, you're listening to Dothraki and um, you're uh, guys.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, I was I grew up with foreign films. Actually, uh, since I'm a little older than you, I was watching them on VHS. Um, and, you know, th- so since they're a foreign language, they're m- mainly European and then some Asian. And definitely for me, probably my first sort of, you know, besides watching the Kung Fu films like on Saturdays and or like in the theater uh, that had really bad dubbing. Um, I think my first experience of a, an Asian film that was great was Tampopo. And that was 1985, and so it, it feels like this has just been so long in the making um, that I just almost can't still believe it.
2: Do you think there's a possibility that it's actually going to democratize the process a little bit more? Because if everything moves, I mean, obviously a lot a lot of these companies are putting lots of money behind these events I mean I went to like a free solo screening which did end up winning the best documentary and that National Geographic held and you could just like tell from the get-go they were they were pushing so hard for that Oscar and then it made me think of someone like Bing Liu who directed Minding the Gap and I was like Bing can't compete with Disney National Geographic money right like he can't hold he can't rent out an entire 300 seat theater invite all the voting members of the academy, and then treat them to craft next door after the um, after the event. So if it goes online, and hope maybe hopefully the barrier cost barriers to get the screeners out is low. Everything becomes a digital link. You're there. You're eliminating these like fancy schmoozing parties, and there's no body like the can or Tribeca to anoint as heavily who the who the kingmakers don't have the power anymore. Like, do you think like people are actually going to have to watch the films and vote on merit alone <laughs> or more on merit? I don't, think, merit than I don't maybe... think they'll
3: watch the films. <laughs> I think they're still listening to what the distributors tell them to watch and the distributors, because I mean, I, I don't blame a distributor. You just can't watch everything in the world. Um, the gatekeepers like film festivals matter. So that sort of drives their attention. Um, and for the critics, too. I mean, critics watch a ton of movies, but they still can't watch all the movies of the world. I mean, I, I work at the San Diego Asian Film Festival. I could barely watch the films that I think are the important films in Asia, and that's just one continent. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think maybe it'll be democratizing. that maybe Cannes already has an outsized um, role in shaping kind of international film discourse already. Um, but who's going to step in to do that? I, I think that's we'll have to wait and see
0: so anything at this point the idea of democratizing it like just because of everyone not being able to like gather in the same place and so like release release strategies are all weird and funky to me you know trying to you know still like the festivals like Tribeca's happening but it's going to happen online so I'm just like who's going to go online and um, watch that because without getting all the swag and having be whined and dined and which, you know, I have to admit, there is definitely a big thing with, I don't want to even say the film community like TV also that like networks and studios, you know, woo them in order to get their attention and because it's such a crowded marketplace. Um, and now that if we're opening it up internationally, like Possibly, I mean, I still feel like, oh, we made so much progress. Maybe they'll think that's enough for now. Um, it's hard.
3: It's always a possibility. yeah. It's hard
0: to very much gauge, yeah, because like after Oscars, so white, like you know, there was like an uptick and then all of a sudden down. So um, <laughs> it's I feel like just with everything else right now, it's so hard to even predict the next week. So I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well we're going to keep watching Asian films because, um, I mean, it's, it's what we do. It's kind of literally all of our jobs to do so. <laughs>
2: Professional <laughs> Asians. Though, Brian, I do have to ask, do you feel a little bit hipster of flying the flag hard at San Diego Asian Film Festival for directors like Bong Joon-ho early on? And are you just like looking around going, guys, where have you been? We told you about <laughs> this guy like years ago. What the hell?
3: Um, so... I think what you are referring to is we we were the first we We've held the U.S. premiere of Memories of Murder, which was Bong Joon Ho's second film, which is still my favorite of his. Um, I don't know, like I don't think it's just us. And I I wrote a piece on this, um, but Asian Americans especially have been the ones watching. Like the fact that we all know who Andy Lau is. Like who in America knows who <laughs> Andy Lau is? Um, and when Andy Lau, if if say one day one of his films gets hugely awarded, we're going to be like, where where have you been this whole time? Um, Andy
2: Lau is phenomenal, and I will go on record in saying that that Infernal Affairs is a better movie than The Departed. Fight me, oh, hands down. I will meet you. Well, not physically. <laughs> I'll fight you on Twitter if you want, but I can't. Not supposed to meet right now to physically fight. But like we can reschedule it for when things are better. But fight <laughs> me on that. He is phenomenal, and I do think that. One of the great one of actually my favorite things about also opening up to foreign language or you know, non-English films is there is so much amazing talent, not just writer and directors, but the amazing actors that have been working in like Chinese Asian cinema for decades now. I think Tony Liang, Pound for Pound, is probably one of the best actors alive. He's gonna actually be the new Shang Chi movie, so that would be very interesting to see how that works. <laughs> Andy Lau was in The Great Wall, but was not able to showcase his talents in that movie. And like Andy Lau can change the accent of his Chinese. So he dubs himself in every Chinese movie he makes, which is crazy. I I mean, he's they're phenomenal. And I'm really happy that I hope people are starting to recognize that this there is great talent. And sometimes you have to watch them in their language because it's very hard to act in a language you're not fluent in.
3: I think a great takeaway of this is if parasites don't continue to win Oscars, we'll be okay because we know where the good stuff is and we will continue to watch <laughs> it because we've been doing it our entire lives.
1: And on that note, um, that also do it for this episode of the Good Pop Culture Club. I want to thank our guest, Brian Hu, for joining us. Brian, if people want to find out more about your work, where can they go?
3: You can check us out on our other podcast, another um, potluck podcast called Saturday School. Um, where every week we f- find an old Asian American film that may or may not even be available anywhere. And we talk about it like it's Casablanca Blanca, <laughs> because why not? Um, but you can also follow my work at the San
1: Diego Asian Film Festival, um, where I'm the artistic director. And also check out, um, Brian actually wrote a book on Asian film. It's, um, it's a textbook, right? So you can't really get it at um, at your local bookstore, but tell your libraries. Sneak
3: in,
2: yeah, or sneak into the nearest academic library and
1: uh, photocopy see it if they
2: have a copy.
1: Jess, where can people follow you?
2: They can find me on Twitter at justju tweets justjuju.
1: And Han,
0: um, I'm Hanonymous on Twitter. That's H A N H O N Y M O U S.
1: And you can follow me at Marvin Yue. That's my name, M-A-R-V-I-N-Y-U-E-H. Um, I usually just retweet other people, but I'm think i'm a pretty good retweeter so um, you can follow the podcast by going to goodpop.club um, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast here um, we do appreciate everyone who listens um, we are a proud member of the potluck podcast collective a collective of asian american hosted podcasts um you can learn more about our fellow shows like brian saturday school uh, by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. and um yeah that's another podcast thank you everyone for joining and um we'll see y'all next week
2: Stay safe, stay sane.